Amen. What a good time together worshiping the Lord. I want to welcome you to church. Uh, those of you who are at our South Mountain campus or Fountain Hills or Mesa or online, it's good to be together today. I want to give you a heads up about what's coming up. Next week, we're having our birthday celebration as a church, our nine-year birthday. And at all of our campuses, we'll be celebrating that. And also at our Mesa campus, we have our grand opening for our new facility. We've been in this facility for a few weeks now, but it's our grand opening for the community. And we just want to welcome people to church, let them know that we're here. Uh, and so honestly, in the life cycle of the year, this is a great week for you to invite people to church. If God's been putting someone on your heart and you've been praying for them to come to faith or to get plugged into a life-giving church, they're ready, they're primed right now. They started making New Year's resolutions last week and they're, just ready, they're ready for you to come along and invite them to come to church next Sunday. So you can do that and it's a great time to come to church. I wanna encourage all of you to be here because next week we're starting a series on the 10 commandments. We're gonna go through each of the 10 commandments and I think honestly as a pastor that most people probably really only understand like three or four of them. And a lot of them, there's kind of a misunderstanding or half understanding about what's really being taught. But the Ten Commandments are our bedrock for understanding morality, right versus wrong. But before you can appreciate those, you need to understand at least in general what the Bible refers to as the law. The law. Now, I'm going to warn you right up front that I'm going to go through an irresponsible amount of Scripture today. <laughs> what many pastors would say is too much. They'll say, you know, you can't teach people that much theological truth. It'll go over their heads. It's not seeker sensitive. And it would be too much at a lot of churches, but it's not too much. It's just right at Generation Church. This church, we love the Bible. And just as a little side note, I think most of our problems in America today are due to decades of biblical illiteracy that was really able to happen because of seeker sensitive churches just teaching baby milk formula sermons. And the problem is if you only ever give people baby's milk, you end up with a church full of babies, big babies. Like, and it's cute to be a baby when you're two years old, but it's not cute when you're 32 years old, amen? Someone like, you end up with society that just smells like stinky diapers. That's not good. So yeah, this church, we're gonna teach you a lot of scripture um, and we're gonna teach you a lot of truth and I know when I'm preaching some of these sermons that not everyone is going to get every part of every sermon. But I don't want to dumb down every sermon to the lowest common denominator. Because if you do that, then no one ever grows. No one ever gains understanding or strength. And, and so what I'm going to do is, is kind of like the way we do dinner in my family. Uh, is we feed our daughter, who's three years old, whatever we're eating as the parents. Like if we're having soup, she's having soup. If we're having steak, she's eating steak. It's gonna be cut into smaller bites and she's not gonna eat as much as her dad, but that's okay. I don't expect her to because her stomach is like this little and mine's like this little. And so I'm gonna feed her what we're eating and she's gonna eat the right amount for where she's at. And that's the way I'm gonna preach sermons. I'm gonna preach sermons in a way that I'm not gonna assume you're dumb. And I'm not gonna preach sermons as if you got saved five minutes ago. That would make sense if I was like a missionary on an island with a tribe that never heard about Jesus, but this is a church. So I'm gonna preach to you like the church. And I know that, 
There will be people in our services who don't get every part of every, but that's okay. You get, you get some part, you get some of it into you, and that nourishes you spiritually to grow in maturity and in strength. So we're going to go through a lot today, uh, and that's okay because we love God's word. I want to talk today about how the law applies to us as Christians. I want to help you understand the law and what we should do with all those weird things that are talked about in the first few books of your Bible. I know some of you are like, there's a lot of weird stuff up front. I typically just skip over that. I just, I just keep going to the stuff that makes sense. Well, okay, here's what I want to start with. John chapter 1 says this in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who's it talking about there? Jesus. And we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. From his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So what's it talking about here? Grace upon grace. Obviously we're getting grace from Jesus, but we're getting that on top of some other form of grace that we've already received. What's that foundational grace being described? You get the clue in verse 17. It's talking about the law of Moses, which conferred grace to the people who believed God. And I'll explain that more in this message and in future weeks. But when Jesus then came on the scene, we receive a greater portion of grace on top of the grace that was already given through the law. It says the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ in verse 17. You should understand that in the original language, it's not contrasting the law versus grace and truth that came through Jesus. The law was given by God's grace and it contained truth. And Jesus came and brought grace and truth. Just as Jesus is greater than Moses, the grace and truth he brings us is bigger. It's greater than the grace and truth that came through the law of Moses. If you understand just those few verses properly, you are set up for so much revelation. And if that's the only thing you get out of this sermon today, you're going to be off to the right start here. You can go back to scrolling Instagram if you need to now. And it's going to help you in a lot of ways. Um, but this is what I want you to realize is that we have to get a full appreciation of the law in order to have an appreciation for Jesus and what he did for us. There are a lot of Christians that unfortunately have like a bad attitude about the Old Testament or the law. And they start talking about the law with negative attitude disparagingly like, ooh, the law, that's gross. Like, ooh, I'm a New Testament Christian. The law was such a burden. The law was such a bummer. No, 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 I'm saved by grace. I don't want the law. It makes me think like back in the day, we had these little New Testament uh, pocket Bibles. This is how you carried the Bible with you everywhere you went before we had smartphones. It's actually got like smartphone size. You know, you're like, doo, 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 doo. you can like whip your Bible out out at the coffee shop and like lead someone to Christ right before you had the Bible app or if you were a soldier you know you could keep this in your chest pocket maybe read it maybe just as a good luck charm it's like it'll stop a bullet or something I don't know but there's a lot of Christians who they really only ever read the New Testament and maybe like a little Psalms and Proverbs mixed in like a little little New Testament pocket Bible size understanding of scripture and if you only ever have like a little perspective of scripture, 
you're only going to experience a little bit of the blessing that God has available to you. If you want big Bible blessings, you got to get a big Bible perspective. You got to read the whole Bible. And that's what we're trying to do uh, here today. Here's what I want you to realize. Grace didn't start with Jesus. It started with creation. God created a good world full of good stuff in a good universe and gave us good relationships to enjoy with one another and with him. But the first man, Adam, messed it up and he sinned. God showed mankind grace right off the bat in Genesis 3 when he promised that a God-man would come to save us from sin. In Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent in the garden, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God is speaking about Jesus prophetically who will come as the offspring from Eve and then save us from the schemes of the devil. And I love this verse because this picture of Jesus crushing the head of the devil, that's my Jesus right there. You know, like sometimes people are like, you know, you Christians, you need to be nice. And I'm like, I'm, I'm devil's head crushing nice. That's the kind of nice I wanna be. But that verse there, Genesis 3.15, is sometimes called the proto-evangelium, which is a Latin way of saying first good news. That's the first good news. The Bible's got bad news and good news. Bad news is we're really, really bad. The good news is God is really, really good. The bad news is that we're sinners. Good news is that God sent us a savior. Bad news is your sins have earned you a spot in hell. Good news is that Jesus' righteousness has earned you a spot in heaven. So you got to get the bad news and the good news. But grace didn't start in the New Testament. God showed grace to Adam. He showed grace to Noah when he spared him and his family from the flood. He then establishes a covenant of grace with Abraham, in Genesis 12, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them. So are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right? Abraham was about 70 years old. And God says to him in Genesis 12, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. So this was a covenant of grace, not of works. Humans have never been saved by works the Old Testament law never established a covenant of works. Everyone in Old Testament times was saved by God's grace through faith. And Romans 4 makes that very clear when it says this. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, that's faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's grace. Abraham wasn't perfect. God didn't promise to bless him because he was perfect. This promised blessing was given by grace through faith. Now, we've been in Exodus uh, for some time, other than taking a break for Christmas. And so we're focused on a guy who came a couple hundred years after Abraham named Moses. After the Abrahamic covenant, called that because it was given to Abraham, you get what's called the Mosaic covenant because it was given to Moses. The Abrahamic covenant of grace didn't, get supplanted by the Mosaic covenant. It just changed forms. It expanded in the law of Moses. There was more detail given, kind of crystallized and became clearer. 
Uh, but God made a promise to Abraham to bless him, and God reaffirmed that promise to the sons of Abraham and to Moses. And we can see evidence in Scripture that the Abrahamic covenant didn't go away. Uh, before the scouts were sent into the promised land, maybe you've heard that story, the Lord reminded his people of the promise he made to Abraham in Deuteronomy 1. When the Lord threatened to destroy his own people for making a golden calf and worshiping it, Moses pleaded for mercy based on the Abrahamic covenant. You can read about that in Exodus 32. God also assured his people that whenever they repented of their sin and returned to him, he would give them mercy because he was mindful of the covenant he made with Abraham. That happens in Leviticus 26 or Deuteronomy 4. So then hundreds of years after Abraham, we get the law of Moses, sometimes called the Mosaic covenant uh, and this includes the 10 commandments and it includes all kinds of other commandments but I want to show you what this kind of mosaic covenant thing looks like in Exodus 19 it says this then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God so he's about to get the 10 commandments here the Lord called to him from the mountain and said give these instructions to the family of Jacob these instructions that's all of the law that I'm about to give you Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagle, eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. So, I want to point this out because we're about to talk about the law. Moses is about to receive the law, but God gives him this promise. And can't you see God's love and grace in this moment, in this promise, this promise is made? Here's God saying, I rescued you from slavery in Egypt and I carried you on eagle's wings to myself. I delivered you supernaturally. Why? Were they perfect? Were the Hebrew people like righteous and perfect? No. They were sinners, just like we're sinners, but God is gracious. Good news is God is still gracious. He says, I, I will make you my own special treasure. That's loving, gracious language there. God's people are special. Maybe people have told you that you're special, but they said it with like a sarcastic attitude, you know? <laughs> you're real special. Or maybe someone's tried to knock you down a peg, you know, like, who do you think you are? You're not special. You could just point to the Bible and say, yes, I am. God said, I'm special. He says, if you keep my covenants, you'll be my kingdom of priests. And, and that communicates the idea that as God's people, we all get to commune with God and have relationship and access to God. He said, if you want all this blessing, keep my commands, obey my commands. And he gave them lots of commands. Now, I want to help you to understand the law because that's kind of like a big term, but you can understand it better when you use this framework for understanding the law. This is not a perfect framework, but it's helpful. And the church fathers used this framework going back to guys like Justin Martyr and Origen in the second century, early, early Christians they use the same framework. So here are three applications of God's law for Israel. First, there were moral laws that were given. 
these laws, they were moral laws and they reflected God's standard of right and wrong. And they were called moral laws because it's an enduring standard. It's an eternal standard of right and wrong. That's why some theologians refer to them as natural law or creation law. So for example, the Bible makes it clear, murder was always wrong, even before God gave the 10 commandments to Moses, which specified you shall not murder. We know that. Or for example, uh, tithing was always good before the law of Moses, which specified they had to do it. We see evidence Abraham did it in Genesis of his own free will because it's always good to honor God first. And then the 10 commandments comes along and God makes it really clear. He spells it out, his moral standards of right versus wrong. God values life, so don't kill. God values justice, so evildoers should be punished. And the 10 commandments and, and the moral law of God makes things clear, like don't steal, don't kill, don't rape people. Like, okay, this, this is a standard of right and wrong that still applies to everyone. Yes. Galatians 3 says, let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. One way you could understand the law is it was like a babysitter who helped you and taught you to be good until Jesus could come along and make us good. The law taught us like, this is how you do what's good. Jesus came along and he supernaturally transformed our heart of stone into a heart of flesh and wrote the law of God on our hearts and he transformed us into his image and he's progressively doing that. He's making us righteous. And so now our need for the law has diminished. And the law, the law of the God is written on our hearts by his grace. It calls us to a higher standard. Now that we're saved by grace, you know, we don't just get to do, do whatever we want. We're called to an even higher standard. Like, for example, the law says, and Jesus made this really clear, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, that was the law. But I say, if you even lust after a woman in your heart, it's like you've committed adultery. Like, raise the bar. You have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say, if you hate your brother, you already murdered him in your heart. It's like, oh, man. I thought grace was supposed to make it easier. It makes it better, but it calls us higher. So now this moral law of God, which reflects the heart of God, is still relevant to us today because God doesn't change. So his standards of right and wrong don't change. So you look at some parts of the law you can be like, oof, that's moral law. It still applies to everyone in all places at all times. The next part of the law you should understand is the civil law, or you could think of it as societal law. It formed the guidelines for a prosperous society. They had civil laws like we have civil laws. So for example, like we have speed limits, but they're not necessarily a matter of morality. Like if you speed, it's not because you're evil but you're still breaking the civil law of the land. They had civil laws too. And they get down to the real nitty gritty even. Like in Deuteronomy 22, God specified if you build a house, you need to put a railing around the roof so that if someone falls off, you're not guilty of bloodshed. They have building codes, just like, 
I think it's real interesting they get into the specifics like that and they talk about things like what do you do with criminals or paying restitution to people you've hurt and the exact details of their civil law don't apply to us today because that was applying the moral standard of God to their specific nation in that time and place. Jesus endorses us following the laws of our land. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. So we look at some of their laws like, well, hey, if this crime is committed, this is the punishment. The punishment was part of their civil law. Then third, their ceremonial laws, or you could think of them as religious laws. And they conveyed the mercy of holy God to sinful man. The ceremonial law paints this picture of clean versus unclean. And you get the image as you read through the ceremonial laws. Okay, God is clean. We are unclean. And there's lots of language about clean versus unclean and things you had to do or that you couldn't do. If you, didn't, if you did this, man, it's going to make you unclean and you can't worship. You can't come into God's presence. This, the ceremonial law lays out the process for how man could become clean. And so God talks about dietary restrictions. You can't eat this. It's unclean. Got to eat this. It's clean. There were restrictions on clothing materials. You can't make clothes out of that material. It's unclean. You can't touch dead bodies. It's unclean. There was guidelines on sacrifices and feasts or circumcision. That'd be part of the ceremonial law. What kind of robes priests had to wear and the tassels on their robes and all these details or ceremonial laws. This is the kind of stuff that skeptics usually point to and they'll say, you know, all this weird stuff in the Bible, that proves the rest of it's not valid for us today either. And they're taking kind of this out of context and they're not understanding the proper framework for how we can understand the law. So we'll talk about things today like, okay, God's word makes it clear homosexuality is a sin. And you'll get a skeptic that says, Oh, yeah? Well, the Bible also says eating shrimp is a sin. Okay, well, that was part of their ceremonial law, clean versus unclean. Sexual morality is part of God's moral law. These are enduring standards that go back to creation and apply for all times. So all that ceremonial law, what is, what is that? Is that like meaningless to us? Does it serve no purpose whatsoever anymore for us as Christians? It still serves a purpose for us. In, in the times of Israel, in the Old Testament times, following the ceremonial law, it provided the forgiveness of sin temporarily. People had to follow these guidelines and if they sacrificed animals and they worshiped the right way, God would cover over their sin temporarily. And they had to repeat this process year after year. They sinned, they'd offer sacrifices, but the blood that was shed from those animals was a placeholder. It was a type of image of the blood that would be shed from Jesus, who would be the ultimate sacrifice. They followed that ceremonial law by faith and they received God's grace, looking forward to the work that would be completed in Jesus for all time. It partially restored relationship between God and man, the ceremonial law. If you were doing all the right things and, and you were clean, then the high priest could go into God's presence. Now, through Jesus, we're all made clean eternally, and we have access to God's presence, every one of us, all the time. The Holy Spirit lives in us. So I want to show you this. I think if you want to understand the heart of the ceremonial law, rather than me right now giving you lots of examples of it, I want to give you like 
a word picture of it. All that temple worship process, the sacrifices, the priests, the veils, the robes, the oil, all this. The Bible tells us that what happened in the tabernacle or the temple was a kind of mirror image of what was happening in heaven. And I'm going to talk more about this in months down the road here. But here's a a scene, kind of a word picture I want you to to get. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah is given a vision of the throne room of heaven. And he sees the throne of God surrounded by angels. It says in verse 3, they were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, it's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, see this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Okay, so this is like a scene that Isaiah is given a vision of the throne room of heaven. And I think it's kind of like a word picture of what happened with the tabernacle and temple worship. Just like he was in God's presence and he had awareness of God's holiness and his sinfulness, the ceremonial law communicated the same thing to people. All this clean versus unclean. It, it was teaching about God's clean, his holiness versus mankind's sinfulness. And Isaiah realized like, I'm a sinner, like I'm doomed. I can't be in God's presence or I'll die. Well, the ceremonial law made it clear that if the priests went into God's presence without following the proper procedures, they would be killed because you can't bring unholiness into God's holy presence. And in the vision, an angel comes and touches his lips with a burning coal. And this is kind of an image of how God cleanses our spirit through forgiveness of sin. And so these ceremonial laws, all the details of like, you know, you can't eat pork or you got to wear this kind of clothing material or you can't touch this kind of thing or it's unclean. That doesn't apply to us today, but that law does highlight truth to us about the sin and uncleanness of sin versus the holiness of God and how we need to be made righteous through faith in Jesus. Now, Jesus has given all of us full access to the throne room of God, and we can come boldly into his presence, scripture says, because we've been made clean by the blood of the lamb that was shed for us. Jesus' sacrifice makes us clean, and we're not bound by the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament. Praise God, somebody. You know what I'm saying? Like, in the book of Acts, Peter had a vision of, like, all these animals descending. God gave him this vision, and God said, eat all of it. It's all clean now. And he's like, no, I can't. And God's like, do it. And I'm so thankful for that. You know, my brother brought me over like a smoked pork thing this week. It was so good. I'm going to eat that pork, you know. Throw another shrimp on the Barbie. We're, we're free. <laughs> so it's an imperfect framework. The moral law, the civil law, the ceremonial law, but it's helpful. It's not perfect though because there are some laws that are kind of confusing. Like is it moral or is it a civil law? I'm not really sure. Like for example, in, a, in Leviticus 19, there was a law that basically said, don't trip blind people. Like, yeah, that's good. That's, yeah, we shouldn't trip blind people. <laughs> like, even still, today. 
that's, that's good. But some of the commandments, they had moral and civil law together. So a law would be given like, you know, if you do this, you should be executed. Well, the moral part of the law, like honestly, like it says, you know, if children rebel against their parents, they should be executed. Wow. How many of you are thinking about bringing that back, right? <laughs> There, there's something there. So honoring your parents, that's part of the moral law, but the sentence of execution was part of the civil law. So we still value the morality, but we don't have to follow the sentence. We obey the laws of our land in that sense. Okay, so what do we do with the fact that mankind couldn't follow all these commands? They didn't follow all the commands of God perfectly, but they were still living under a covenant of grace. And you see God's grace even as they failed to obey these commands. He continued to show them mercy even when they rebelled against him. He showed them grace even when they didn't deserve it. He created a sacrificial system that temporarily covered their sin until Jesus would come and pay the price for sin once for all time as the ultimate sacrifice so that we can receive the benefits of the covenant of grace. I want you to understand it like this. God's covenant of grace was established with Abraham. It was formalized with Moses and fulfilled through Jesus. So it's not Moses versus Jesus. It's not the law versus grace. It's not Old Testament versus New Testament. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus gives us grace upon grace. The new covenant or the New Testament is the fulfillment of the old covenant. And Jesus makes this clear in Matthew 5. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So often you'll get Christians who are like dismissive of everything in the Old Testament. Like, well, that's Old Testament. I don't need to read that. It's weird. I just read the New Testament. If you don't read the Old Testament, you won't have an appreciation for the New Testament. Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. And so if you don't understand the law, you won't understand the person of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus as Christians, we receive the promised blessing of the covenant God made to Abraham and Moses. And you remember the, the promise that God made to Moses? We read the, about that in Exodus 19. God talked about, you're gonna be my, pro, my chosen people, my own special possession, a kingdom of priests. Well, then fast forward after Jesus, you see in 1 Peter chapter 2, this, this good news, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, Jesus gives us grace upon grace already given. The old covenant promised blessings didn't go away because God is not a man that he should lie. He keeps his promises. And he says this in Psalm 105. He says, he remembers his covenant forever, the promise he made for a thousand generations the covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac, he confirmed it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. So all the promises of God, 
those are still valid because he doesn't lie. He's not going to break his promise and be accused of breaking a promise. We just now experience the fulfillment of the covenant through faith in Jesus. Okay, so now we're Christians. We're not Jews. We're not bound by all the Old Testament laws. So how do we apply God's moral law to our lives as Christians? What, what good is it for us today as Christians? So I'll give you three applications of God's moral law for Christians today. There's a political application, or you can think of it as a, a, a civil application today. And the law of God helps us to establish political laws in our society today. And this restricts sinners from giving in to sin. So now as Christians, we care about what the Bible says. God's transformed our heart and he's written his law on our heart and he's given the Holy Spirit to convict us of, of sin and righteousness. And so we don't really need a civil law to tell us not to murder because the Bible told us not to murder. And the Holy Spirit tells us not to murder. But it's good to have civil law that is formed by the law of God that restricts sinners from murdering. Because honestly, why? They're spiritually living in darkness with wicked hearts. And without God, there is no absolute standard of right versus wrong. So it's okay that we take the word of God and we let it shape our civil law. First Timothy 1 comments on this. We know that the law is good when used correctly. For the law was not intended for people who do what is right. I love this. This punches hard here. It is for people who are lawless and rebellious, who are ungodly and sinful, who consider nothing sacred and defile what is holy, who kill their father or mother or commit other murders. The law is for people who are sexually immoral or who practice homosexuality or are slave traders, liars, promise breakers, or who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teachings that come from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed God. Yeah, wow. Are you allowed to read this in 2023? I just read the mail. I don't write it. So when people say we shouldn't impose our standards as Christians on society, in some ways that, that could be true. But in general, yeah, maybe we should. Because things like don't steal, don't kill, don't abuse children, that's founded in God's moral law. That's where we get our understanding of right versus wrong. And without it, we would have lawlessness, which leads to chaos and pain. Here's the second purpose of it. It's educational. It convicts sinners of their sin. Sinners learn through the law that what they desire to do is sinful. It's like, I want to steal, but the law says it's illegal. So maybe that means stealing's bad. Maybe that means I'm bad. That's a good thing for them to have that realization. There are sometimes Christians have negative perception of the law because there are some scriptures that are confusing on the surface. 1 Corinthians 15 says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. What does that really mean? It was always wrong to murder, but once the law made it very clear, now if you do commit a sin, you're even more guilty than before the law spelled it out for you. And scripture makes it clear that people who go to hell are going to be punished more severely when they had more knowledge of the truth than other people who didn't know as much of the truth. That's the power of sin. Romans 7 talks about this. This is a really insightful passage. 
Well then, the Apostle Paul writes, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would have never known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. But sin in me used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. At one time, I lived without understanding the law. But when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died. So I discovered the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. But still, the law itself is holy, and its commands are holy and right and good. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human a slave to sin. Let me explain that. So the Apostle Paul said, I wouldn't have even known that Coveting was a sin if the law hadn't spelled it out to me. But once the law made it clear that it was, then I, I kind of wanted to do it. It's kind of like, you know, if you're having a cookie and your mom comes in and says, you can only have one cookie. Now all of a sudden, I didn't even want more than one cookie before, but now I want more than one cookie because you told me I can't have it. Or like you're playing in the backyard. Your mom says, you know, I'm going to the store. Stay in the backyard. Well, I, I, I didn't even want to leave the backyard before, but now you're telling me I, I can't leave the backyard. I want to leave the backyard. The, the, the power of sin in me comes to life now that, that, that I have the law. And then the other thing he says is, is sin took advantage of those commands. Like once I had the law, because I'm a sinner, I started looking for all kinds of loopholes to the law. Anybody else relate to that? Like we got some loophole finders up in here. Like I remember when I was in, you know, like youth group as a teenager growing up and they'd be teaching about like sex is for marriage and I'm there like, okay, yeah, well, how far can you go? <laughs> like, that's exactly what a sinner would ask in that situation. It just, it revealed, the law reveals our sinfulness. It's the power of sin is the law. So because we live in a biblically illiterate culture, we need the law to guide us and protect us. And, and I have had a lot of situations where people get saved in church and they haven't been exposed to Christianity necessarily and they learn all kinds of stuff. Like, I didn't even know. I didn't even know that was wrong. It happens all the time. You got like a guy and a girl, boyfriend and girlfriend, they're living together. They're like, oh, wait, we're not supposed to do that? No, 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 no. You're supposed to get married. You're gonna, then you can have sex. Like, oh. By the way, if any of you need to get married, see me after church, we'll do a quick like, yeah. <laughs> In seriousness, go, you can go get your marriage license. We'll do it next week. <laughs> and then the third purpose of the law for us as Christians is example. It instructs Christians in how to live. The law teaches the Christian how to please God. You know, so you know Jesus summarized all the law could be summarized as love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. But without the law, then the obvious question would be, okay, cool, but what does that even mean? How do you love God? How do you love your neighbor? Is that just like sending thoughts and prayers to your? Is that, people today they don't want to have standards of right versus wrong, and Christians will say like, "Let's not get caught up in all like the sin talk. Let's just love people." Okay, yeah, but 
How do you do that? Well, you look at God's word and you can look at the word become flesh. Like Jesus, what, what did he do? He, he fed this, the hungry and he healed the sick and he spoke good news to those who were living in bondage. And, and so we can follow in his footsteps and we can serve and we can bring healing and correction and we can build and we can teach and we can do all the good things Jesus said to do. We can tell people the good news about Jesus. All these things that Jesus did, they weren't contrasted with the Old Testament law. Jesus was the perfect manifestation of the law come to life. Jesus didn't replace the law, he represented it perfectly. Some people, they talk about the law like it was a burden, but it's good to understand this. There was a burden, but it wasn't created by God. The burden of the law was created by man. In Luke 11, Jesus replied, and you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. So the religious leaders, the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees and the priests and the temple workers in Jesus' day, they were adding all these traditions and requirements onto the law of Moses. And they were creating a burden for people. And that's not what God did. God didn't create a burden. He gave us the law as a blessing. Jesus corrected that error. And he made it very clear. He said, Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. We'll talk about that in the week we talk about the, 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 the law of the Sabbath. He was saying, like, the law was given for your blessing. You weren't created just to follow the law. God gave you the law to bless you and help you. And even today, there are Christians who add religious burden to God's law of love. And maybe you've been around Christians like that, where it's like, man, if you don't read this translation of the Bible, <laughs> you, don't sing, you don't sing those modern Christian songs, do you? Oh, gross. It's, you, oh, no. You go to that kind of church, like where they have like subwoofers? Ugh, ugh. It's like, relax. There's a lot of people even today who, just like the Pharisees, they pay a lot of attention to the word of God, but they miss the heart of God. His commandments were meant to bring freedom, protection, and blessing, not burden and condemnation. There's a lot of people today that they're really good at paying attention to God's law, but they miss God's love. The Old Testament law of Moses was not pitted against love. In fact, the law commanded us to love. The law reveals God's love. And Jesus made it clear our motivation for keeping his commandments is not fear, but love. In John 14, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Have you ever wondered, like, do I really love God? Does that person love God? It's not our job to get in their heart and judge whether or not they do. We just look at their life. If you love him, you'll keep his commandments. You don't need your pastor to come to your house and checklist, find all the things you're doing wrong and give you a grade on how much you love God. Like, mm, B minus. <laughs> you need to do better. No, if you love him, you'll keep his commandments. It's reiterated by the apostle John. In 1 John 5, we know we love God's children if we love God and obey his commandments. Loving God means keeping his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. They bring blessing. 
So you could summarize it like this. We don't obey God's commandments to prove, but to love. We don't obey God's commandments to earn, but to receive. We don't have to serve one another to prove how much we love God. We serve each other because we love God and we want to be like Jesus who served us. And the way I handle finances, like I don't tithe to earn God's blessing. I, I tithe to receive God's blessing because he first gave so much for me. As Christians, right, like we don't do what's right to prove our love. We love Jesus and so we want to do what's right. Not always, but increasingly as we walk with him and we become more like him, our desires align more with his desires and we want to do what's right. So man, I'm thankful for the law of God because it reveals my inherent sinfulness in need for a savior. With the law, we're able to see God's perfect, righteous standard of holiness and our shortcomings. And, and we can see I'll never be able to bridge that gap on my own. All the hard work, determination, and pulling myself up by the bootstraps, and I would be far short of where I need to be to earn salvation. Jesus, you, you want to earn salvation? Fine. Keep all the law perfectly. None of us are able to do that. So we need someone who could do it for us, and that's what Jesus did. He perfectly met all the requirements of the law he lived it in a way that we never could. And then he willingly laid his life down and he bled to pay the price for our sins. He was the perfect sacrifice who made us clean in God's sight. So now we can come into his presence without guilt. We're made clean, we're made righteous, and we become God's own special people, just as he promised we would. And maybe there's someone here today, you're like, I don't know if I've ever received Jesus. I still feel the guilt of my sin, and I don't know that I have that kind of relationship with God. And I think today is an opportunity for someone to make that decision to cross the line of faith and accept Jesus as their savior, as their mediator between God and man. That's what Jesus does for us. So I'm going to ask that we could bow our heads right now at all of our locations and online. And if you want to pray today to accept Jesus, I'm going to lead you in that prayer. And Maybe you're here and you're like, I don't know if I am a Christian, but inside of you, you feel something like a conviction, like, yeah, I know I have sinned. I know I've, I've broken God's standards and I'm guilty, but I, I want to be forgiven. And, and, and so something inside of you right now is rising up. Like, I'm, I'm going to put my faith in Jesus. I'm going to trust him to save me. I don't understand all of this, but I, I understand that. I need a savior and I believe it's Jesus. So if that's you right now, I just want to lead you in this prayer and I'm going to ask you to pray it with me. You can repeat this after me just to help you kind of pray this yourself. Just say, God, I know that I've sinned against you. I've broken your law and I'm guilty. I need your forgiveness. I'm putting my trust in Jesus to save me. I believe he died for me on the cross and I believe he rose again, proving he is God. I'm going to follow Jesus from this day forward to the best of my ability. And I ask that you would help me and lead me in your love. Thank you, God, for always loving me. Even when I'm falling short of your standard, you continue to love me. And you see me as righteous in Christ Jesus. Amen.
Amen. Hey, let's stand to our feet right now. Aren't you grateful for what God's done for us? He's made us his own special possession. He's made us a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Through faith in Jesus, his death and resurrection, the church of Jesus Christ was born. We're here today as God's people, and we have a reason to worship him. So I'm going to ask you, don't start thinking yet about what comes next, about what you got to do this afternoon. Don't rush out of here if you can't help it. Let's take a moment to praise God the way he deserves to be praised for what he has done for us. He's holy and he's made us holy. Aren't you good? Come on, let's worship him right now. Let's praise him. Let's sing.